Hello from me and Happy New Year. Hope you've uh, enjoyed the break. I've quite enjoyed the uh, lack of pressure to do this every week over Christmas, although I haven't been wasting my time because I've actually now submitted my PhD thesis. So very excited about that. But anyway, that's enough about me. Let's get on with Moses and the wilderness years and this week we're in chapter 12 of the book of numbers and the story that we've been following for the last n weeks has been an amazing and at times depressing mixture of god's greatness and power and mercy and human opposition both to God and to his appointed leader Moses. Well, this week it gets personal and we really get down to the nitty-gritty and see how the characters involved handle open conflict and deliberate defiance of Moses' leadership. And if you've ever lived through any similar kind of conflict then we're going to see that there's a lot here to learn both about human nature but also about God's nature. I want to tackle this chapter under five headings. What's the problem? What's the issue? And then a look at Moses' response, God's response and the people's response. So that's the map of where we're going. Let's begin with what's the problem. Well, verse 1 tells us that it's Moses' wife. Uh, Now, in fact, a lot of leaders get criticised because of what people don't like about their wives. Uh, I've got that t-shirt myself. Note also the gossiping behind their backs. Miriam and Aaron begin to talk against Moses. It might be, though, that it's just racism. Uh, She's a Cushite wife. Almost certainly that means that she was Ethiopian and therefore black-skinned. Legend says that when Moses was in Egypt working for Pharaoh... He led a military campaign to Ethiopia and the king's daughter, Tharbis, fell in love with him, helped him to capture the city and later married him as her prize. Absolutely no idea whether that's a true story or not, but anyway, that isn't the point. And uh, as so often is the case in life, there is a presenting problem But the real issue comes next, and it comes very quickly in the next verse. It's not racism, it's democracy. Who does Moses think he is? Does he think he's got some kind of a hotline to God or something? Can't we hear from God too? Now, to be fair, coming from those two people... They kind of have a point. Miriam, we know, is a prophetess, and God has certainly spoken through her. Aaron, 
is the high priest, the, the religious leader in the community. So maybe they do have a certain right to feel um, that, that Moses' leadership perhaps hasn't left the space for them that they would have liked. But look how they handle it. And that's a clue, I think, to uh, something about the real issue here. As people have done ever since they were in Egypt, they grumble and moan and grizzle behind his back. And that's never a good way of handling any kind of conflict. So what about Moses' response, number three? Well, this is kind of different, this one. In the past, Moses had faced trouble because God had not come up with the goods, food, water, whatever. This time, God has come up with the goods. He's given them a leader. And he has, in fact, given Moses a hotline. God does speak uniquely through him. But this is a head-on, deliberate challenge to his authority. Now, we're used in this story so far to Moses hearing people's moaning and immediately and instinctively taking it to God. This time, he doesn't. He doesn't appear to do anything at all. There's a little editorial note in verse 3 about his humility. Uh, maybe it was that that stopped him crying out to God, as he usually did. Maybe that verse is there just to show that if Aaron and Miriam think that Moses is kind of lording it over them and, and using his uh, position in an oppressive way, maybe that verse is there to, to counter that way of thinking. But I wonder whether there, there's another reason here. Maybe he he's simply paralysed. It's one thing for people to have a go at you you might be able to shake that off fairly easily. It's one thing in the church to hear those outside the church community having a go at you. If you want to, for example, remove the pews that they uh, only ever sit on once a year when they come to carols by candlelight and, and word gets out that there's a scheme going on. You know, that those kind of people speaking against you. It, it's not difficult, I guess, to shake that kind of stuff off. But this is family. Literally. These are the people who are closest to him who turn against him. We know, don't we, that that was particularly painful for Jesus with Peter and Judas both turning against him, uh, as well, of course, as the constant misunderstanding of him by all the disciples. It's one thing as a leader when members of your congregation turn against you, but when it's the wardens or your curate or something like that, those you're supposed to be working with, 
it hurts so much more. So it may be the case that Moses does nothing here simply because he goes into shock. He goes into uh, some kind of paralysis mode because he's not being attacked for what God hasn't done. He's being attacked for what God has done in appointing him as leader. And that attack is coming from those who ought to be sharing his leadership with him. We know he's open to that. We've seen that a few times. So what's God's response, fourthly? Well, fortunately, when Moses has not got what it takes to stick up for himself, or even to take it to the Lord in prayer when his friends despise, forsake him, God steps in anyway. And there's a lot to learn, I think, from his approach. Okay, let's talk about this. Always uh, a good thing to do. He takes them away from the crowd. We're going to deal with this in private. But that, interestingly, is where God's counselling skills end. Remembering uh, one of my parishes that I've worked in as, as curate, the vicar died while I was in post. Uh, and the vicar had been basically run by a member of that church who had a lot more power and authority than she should ever have been given. Uh, and basically she spoke and he jumped. So when he died and I found myself as curate in charge, I was absolutely determined that I was going to get off on the uh, a more healthy footing with this person. So like God, I invited her around to talk to me. And at the time I was uh, in the middle of a, uh, a counselling course that I did for two years. And one of the things they teach you is how to set up the room so that the uh, clients feel comfortable and what have you. Well, I did exactly the opposite of everything you're, spoke to do, you're supposed to do. Uh, I sat on a great big high chair and gave her a little low one. I sat with my back to the window so she couldn't see my face. I sat there with a great big clipboard and pen in front of me. I mean, very manipulative looking back on it now. But I basically uh, set this up as I'm in charge. And I said to her, in so many words, you are not going to be able to run me like you ran Fred the Vicar. Name has been changed for legal purposes, but uh, you get the idea. And from that moment on, our relationship was brilliant and we understood each other and she understood my position and that's what God does here he set, he sets up the tent of meeting he shows up in a pillar of cloud even I couldn't uh, manage that one don't you forget who I am and he calls in Miriam and Aaron, and he leaves Moses out of it for now and says, shut up and listen. You think Moses is no better than you as a leader? Well, let me tell you what I think. If I want to speak to a prophet, 
I do it through dreams and visions. If I want to speak to Moses, I do that face to face. Moses is absolutely unique. That doesn't note uh, mean that the ministry of prophets and others uh, is not valid. I still do speak to them, but there is something special about Moses. And then comes the key question, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant? There's quite a lot of people in churches need asking that question, in my experience. Why were you not afraid to speak against the leader I have given for you? When God calls and appoints someone, it's not for you to pull them down, to lob bricks at them. You do that to my leaders, you're doing it to me. But God doesn't just use words, and as he goes away, Miriam becomes leprous. Now, one thing we can be pretty sure of is that wasn't leprosy. Uh, that particular disease didn't appear in Palestine until New Testament times. So the most likely thing is, is some bad skin disease, whether psoriasis or bad eczema or, or something like that. But it's a scary sight in that culture. It's a very visible condition. And the law in Leviticus demanded isolation until it cleared up, which of course uh, leprosy doesn't. So Miriam gets that. There's, a, there's an interesting question here. Why is Aaron not punished as well? Because he'd been part of this as much as she was. And that's one of the uh, the mysteries of scripture that we basically don't know the answer to. Um, it, it may be a source question. It's likely that this passage, although it's an E passage was edited later by P writers, the priestly writers. And of course they have a very high view of Aaron as the high priest. They, they would, he's one of them kind of thing. And so when you read the P source material, they tiptoe quietly past the golden calf incident. Uh, they do all that they can to give Aaron a good press. Maybe it's because the high priest needed to keep worship going and, and uh, he should have been punished really, but he's actually a key worker and so he gets let off. I think that's a very unlikely explanation, but it's one that has been forwarded. The feminists would say that, well, of course, women always get the blame in that patriarchal society, and, and they may have a point there. But whatevs, punishment for him is not mentioned here. But look at poor old Moses. He's received one of the greatest vindications in Scripture anywhere before the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and uh, if that had been me, I'd be I'd be saying thank you, Lord. I hoped that she'd get some kind of smiting or other, because she definitely deserves it. No, not a bit of it. At Aaron's invitation, he prays for her healing, 
and that prayer is immediately answered. Well, I say that it's kind of immediately answered, but note that she is still punished. God is never an easy touch in that sense. If her father had spat in her face, she'd get a week in solitary. She's just spat in yours, so let her stew, and maybe she'll learn a lesson. You also get a motif in in Deuteronomy chapter uh, sorry chapter twenty five, where this kind of exclusion is about shaming people publicly. Let let the community see and understand what she's really done. But note as well that it comes to an end. I think there's something about the Israelite culture that that was much better than us at closure. Um, You get quite a lot in the Old Testament, don't you? This period of mourning thing. You've been bereaved, you've lost someone you love. There's a period of mourning and then you get up wash your face and get on with life and that sounds in our culture a bit harsh and a bit cruel but I'm sure it's healthy I'm sure it's much more healthy than keep posting pictures of your dead relatives on Facebook forevermore and in the same way here yes she's uh, she's given time but at the end of that She's restored to the community. Okay, I've done me time. I've paid the price. That's that incident closed. And I think sometimes that can be a much more healthy way of living than just letting things drag on forever and ever. So she's chucked out onto the naughty step to think about what she's done. But... Did you note the lovely twist at the end? I I really like this. The people's response, which comes in verse 15. The people waited for her. They didn't continue their journey until she could continue it with them. Would have been easy just to move on, leave her behind, write her off. Maybe... Because of her previous standing in the community, she still had a lot of capital. Maybe it's because community in itself is important and more important than any one individual within it. But the people waited until she could be restored to them. The people there, although they're not going to be next week, but the people in this story come out well. They're actually far more godly than she had been. Well, there we are. Really complex, really interesting story. uh, And maybe some stuff in there to help with our conflicts. What's the real issue? Not the presenting thing. What's really going on here? Who will speak up for those who are under attack when they're too stunned or paralysed to speak up for themselves? How good are we at praying for those who have persecuted us? 
Why are people not afraid to challenge God's leaders? What is a healthy way to deal both with punishment and shame, but also to see restoration? I hope very much that you have not got anywhere personally to put this material. If you have, my heart goes out to you. But in any case, I hope that there might be some useful stuff there if ever you do find yourself in that situation.